everyone. My name is Kat Savage and I'm a professional artist, clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working with those in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. The Brave Moment podcast begins now in the middle of the COVID pandemic, probably the bravest moment not only for my guests, but for the whole world. So let's keep talking some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show, we speak to multi-award winning executive producer and assistant editor for BBC News and BBC Three's Kim Rowell. Among her list of many accolades, Kim has been recognised as the Digital Woman of the Year, the Financial Times Kindness and Leadership Leading Light, Female Frontiers Championing Change Honoree, and winner of the Woman of the Future Awards, where she now hosts a podcast of the same name. Author, TEDx speaker, mother, and a black belt kickboxer to boot, it hasn't always been easy for Kim. And after being made redundant three times in her life, she explains how your circumstances don't have to define you, your career, or your personal and emotional success. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to the inspirational Kim Rowell. Welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm so good. How are good. you on this lovely I'm day? Really, I'm really, really good. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for having me on. Oh no, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And I have to start first of all by just giving you a massive clap for all oh, of your thanks. awards through lockdown, but all the hard work that you've been doing. You've mm. been so busy. How do you feel now that we're sort of coming to the uh, the end of it all? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I never, I don't think anyone thought when it was announced last March that we'd be in this for over a year. I don't think that was ever in anyone's mind at all. (laughs) But I think what we've kind of collectively been able to achieve, and I know that the team that I work with in particular, but just generally as a community and as a society, it's quite remarkable really isn't it and I I just I kind of want to applaud everyone out there for all of the kind of efforts and everything that we've all been through because it has been a phenomenal struggle as well but you know we've all most of us thankfully touch wood have kind of made it through so well done to everyone else listening I guess (laughs) I absolutely agree and in some respects it's been kind of nice to have a little bit of time out just to reassess and reevaluate our lives and sort of crack on in a different way and try and find new ways to survive everything so I think that's kind of brought us all together hasn't it yeah completely and I don't think one of my big things in life is that we never take the opportunity to stop and take stock of everything we have everything we want everything we've achieved we never do that and I think it's almost like a big material leave for the country isn't it so (laughs) we're all giving birth right now um yeah so 
I think it's been interesting. <laughs> Some of us, quite literally, the mm, lockdown Rotterdam oh, yes. is real. Mm. <laughs> now, of course, you are uh, a member of the BBC, a very, very high executive mm. editor of the BBC. Congratulations. Thank you. And I do consider you to be one of the guardians of the stories that our nation is exposed to. Mm. What is it that you look for in a story? And how do you recognise when it's worth telling? Me personally, and I'm not saying this is what everybody does, I think it's all about the story and the access and the people that you're kind of investing in and why what, why are you telling this story in the first place and like just to promote my own stuff but I did a TEDx talk not so long ago like last year in the middle of the pandemic and I kind of highlighted three points that I think are phenomenally important when it comes to any kind of new story. So consider the style and tone, like the way you're telling something, how are you doing it? Where are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Have, where have you gone in the country? Who are you reflecting? Who are you getting to with this story? The storytelling techniques and the element of escapism. So everyone wants a little bit of light relief. Everyone wants to either just escape their realities. It's kind of the reason we all watch Married at First Sight Australia, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just the, how, what, what are we getting out of this? How are we kind of opening people's eyes? And then one of the most important points, and this is the final one, put your audience, people and characters first. They are the reason that we're telling these stories. And I think like rolling news is a bit different because obviously it's just reflective of, you know, like Duke of Edinburgh being on hospital or you know latest vaccine news or the budget that kind of thing but you know putting people at the heart of the stories you are always going to empathize and you are always going to you know tug on people's feelings and heartstrings and I think that's one of the most important things that you can do when it comes to storytelling. I absolutely and utterly agree and funny enough um, I was watching just doing a, you know a little bit of research on <laughs> you and sizzling down to some good TV and <laughs> I started to watch your False Hope documentary which oh, I know yeah. that you produced and it utterly changed my perspective on cancer treatment because I've always been of the the sort of mindset that if you can go alternative you know that's best yeah etc etc but after watching that documentary I was absolutely flawed and started to question my own beliefs and I think that's like that's so important important um and I wonder like when you're when you're creating these stories are you in the back of your mind thinking right we've got to sort of remain impartial when we're telling them or are you kind of looking for that way to persuade the nation into maybe a different way of seeing things that's a really good question because I think that that story in particular was that the guy Sean Walsh he was really young he was mm. you know, just into his 20s I think and he'd already had cancer once and he tried chemo and, and his cancer had come back and through kind of family connections he wanted to try these alternative therapies which included thermographic imaging and things like that and it, you know, we all looking at the story from like you think, oh, everyone's got general common sense. Mm. Everyone can see what you should do when you have cancer. But there is no one size fits all. And you have to be reflective and sensitive to all these different kind of nuances that there are. And that's the reason that we make these stories. And that one was particularly hard because we actually went undercover, did some secret filming at the thermographic clinic in Liverpool, where he was from. 
and we kind of called them out and it was there and before the actual doc went out we they'd obviously not seen the secret filming and I got threats from their lawyers and there was a clinic in Mexico who was threatening to take out tabloid adverts against me oh my goodness it was it was the first time in my career I'd had like a bit of a sleepless night before something came out but then when it did the evidence was so stacked against them we never heard from them again so you know it's the strength of the story and it's it's just got to be robust and bulletproof if you're gonna uncover something and investigate it you just need to do it thoroughly and accurately and lay it out there for people to make their own assumptions from and take their own views from that's what we've got to do with our journalism. I can't imagine that night before. Oh my goodness, Kim. Oh, that must have been, you must have been shaking in your boots. Yeah, I think so. I just, I just, I just thought, this is me. This, I don't want to put my family at risk. You know, <laughs> I don't want us to get like poo shoved through the door or whatever. But um, in all honesty, no, in my luck, it would have been like the Daily Star or something if they did, <laughs> they did take out an advert. But um, I think that was it. I, we just knew what we'd done. And obviously we'd spoken a lot with our own compliance and legal teams. And we just had literally gone through the script word for word. And we knew we were fine. Yeah. And that was reassuring. And knowing that the BBC is behind you in these circumstances and it was so powerful it saw the cancer act changed in parliament so you know that was the repercussion we actually got alternative therapies you know reviewed as part of the cancer act so that's what we achieved and you think well that actually makes it more tangible and almost makes it worthwhile I would say I I totally agree <laughs> although I don't envy you in that situation so I'll leave it to the professionals mm. I think um talking of of positive stories though um I know that you had the great privilege of meeting our national treasure mm. Captain Sir Tom Moore and I know that he's recently passed away bless him and that story in itself, it was just so simple. And yet everyone I know is so deeply touched by it. Why do you think that was? And why do you think his story became an important thing to us at this time? He was just a symbol of everything that we needed, wasn't he? Just even the story of how he just decided to start walking up and down his garden <laughs> and his daughter said, I'll give you an extra couple of quid if you keep going until your 100th birthday. And she did work in like press and PR and put out a little press release locally. And then as soon as that global media, I think there was only a handful of countries in the world that didn't take up the story or didn't have people donate to the cause which is incredible. But as to what he symbolises, it's just hope, isn't it? And just in the midst, it was as bleak as it possibly could have been in the pandemic. And he'd been in the army and he'd found love second time round when he was a little bit older. And it was just, he had a little twinkle in his eye and he was <laughs> such a nice guy. And I don't know, but you can, you can be critical and you can kind of, you know, be, oh, I don't know, everyone, even like in within the BBC, people did get a little bit fed up of the story <laughs> because it was such an ongoing thing. But <laughs> having met him and met his family and I spoke to his daughter as part of a podcast I do and she was... I mean, she even, like, people had gone up into her, to her in the street and said, do you realise what you've done? She was getting so much stick for, you know, trying to help him. And obviously, because he was kind of profoundly deaf, she was his ears, and mm. people would criticise her for wearing her company T-shirt when she was doing that. And she's like, 
Well, my off. I'm literally. I'm working now. I've literally run across from my office. This is what I'm wearing, so that I can hear for him. You know, they don't criticize. I'm trying to help, but um, Bless you know. So they, yeah, but it was just. It was what we all needed, I think, in that in that moment when we were all just. We didn't know what was going on. We we didn't know when there might be a glimmer of hope and the end of lockdown might be in sight. And he was just everything that this country loves: a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of the war spirit. It was just. It was perfect. And he was just genuinely such a lovely man. Oh, I can't imagine what it must have been like to actually meet him because he is, he's a little bit of a star in my eyes now. I I absolutely stuck to that story with glue. You're so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) So you have written a book called Towny Spider, which sounds Mm. awesome. I'm going to buy it for my nieces for sure. (laughs) It's doing really well. How did you come up with the idea for it? And you know, how on earth did you get that dung in amongst all of the lockdown and all of your family and work commitments? Yeah, the kind of the inspiration for the story came from when my husband and I were getting married. My family are from the West Country and we live at the time we were living in London. So we were driving down to the church that we wanted to get married in. We had a, like a, a knackered old car, it was like a Fiat Punto. And there was this big spider that was on the wing mirror one weekend as we were driving down. And we got into the countryside and he was still there. And I said to my husband, I was like, he must be so confused as to where, <laughs> where the hell he is. But um, so that's, that's where the idea came from. And then I had a baby. So I'd gone on maternity leave and I came back relatively early. I came back after maybe like five and a half, six months. And I got so much stick for it. And there's also so much pressure around new mums. But I was doing it because it was right for me. It was right for our family, like mentally, like mental health, well-being wise is exactly what I needed to do. So so yeah, and then I, I obviously felt hugely guilty and sitting on my commute because we then at this point lived in Bicester, which is near Oxfordshire and commuted into London. So on my commute, I started writing poetry for my daughter oh. um, as an idea of kind of introducing themes of friendship and mm. kindness and mental health and well-being to really young little people. Mm. And yeah, that's how the kind of the, the book came about. And um, it's quite actually, it's quite hard to get a children's book published. There aren't many publishers that it'll take take it up because unless you're a very well-known celebrity like Tom Fletcher or David Walliams <laughs> or you know those kind of, that kind of ilk then it's nigh on impossible and you have to obviously get an illustrator on board none of this stuff that I knew at the time mm. um and I eventually did get like Olympia publishers took it up in the end and yeah so it came out I think it was I can't remember now like 2018 2019 mm. but yeah it was just it was just really lovely to have something that I could give back to my daughter as well as actually I thought it could be useful in the wider (laughs) world and you know it's really hard to have these conversations with kids as to why it's important they kind of do it naturally children anyway they're kind of inherently kind and someone once told me the reason we stop being kind is because we start to get embarrassed so it's almost as though it's a societal thing so I just thought it's a really good conversation and easy way of introducing those themes to younger children. I'm totally with you with that embarrassment mm. thing. And, you know, you, you mentioned just briefly there the the guilt of going back to mm. work. And that even though it was right for you, there's so much pressure, isn't there, on women in that particular sense. And we do it. We end up with that sort of mum guilt about doing yeah. something. Did that sort of placate a little bit of that guilt because you're being productive in that time <laughs> oh. in your family space? I can't tell you how hard I found it. And I'm, I'm annoyed at myself that I was listening to everybody else apart from myself at this point. But <laughs> 
I think it's just so overwhelming when you have your first child anyway. You're literally trying to keep this little person alive and they don't come with instructions anyway. And I think it was just the one thing that I learned, maybe the hard way, was you just have to do what's right for you and your partner and whoever is in the house that you're in. You need to make it work because there are moments when she was like, she would be very sick and we're still trying to like, both have nine to five jobs and they weren't necessarily nine to five jobs anyway and just managing childcare and then literally wanting to still be present and spending quality time with her and it's literally like a barrage of things and everybody does it differently and there is no one size fits all as I said before but mm. you, I just feel the judgment and I don't know whether it's something that you put upon yourself or I mean social media exacerbates it tenfold if not if not more yeah and it's probably one of the most challenging things I think I've probably ever done and I still grapple with it on a daily basis now and she's four so it's just bless her yeah yeah (laughs) I mean did your partner get paternity leave did you have to sort of figure that out was it as difficult for him in terms of guilt about leaving work coming back no I don't think so. I mean, I have type 1 diabetes, so the birthing experience was a little, maybe a little bit different. But when she came into this world, she wasn't very well for um, about two, three weeks. They thought she might have a brain infection, like meningitis or something like that. So we had to spend quite a lot of time in like the intensive care unit at the, Bay, at the John Radcliffe in Oxford. And he, again, very naively, we didn't really know what we were doing at all. Um, but like my husband had um, just taken two weeks of paternity leave. So we literally came out of hospital and the next day he went to work. And I was like, I can't, like, I was, I was literally all over the shop. And then um, I think one of my next door neighbours just kind of randomly turned up, not knowing that we'd literally just come out of hospital. And she came for a cup of tea and I was like, please don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> please don't go but um yeah it was just it's so weird I don't think you could ever really adequately prepare yourself for being a first-time parent but yeah it was yeah I can imagine you just there sat rocking in your chair a little bit a little bit like not quite knowing what the hell had just happened but yeah bless you Mm. well I'm glad that Townley Spider was born out of that experience Mm. and uh and that we have it now to to go and and give to our children and and help them with issues such as mental health and that which which obviously as adults they still continue don't they oh yes us all I'd like to take you back into your own childhood actually and um I'd just like to know what some of the stories that you you had when you were growing up what what were the stories that sort of shaped you as a child and who were your idols growing up oh gosh so wow I probably got some the most random eclectic mix of of kind of idols I think um so everyone <laughs> from like Lisa Simpson Lisa Simpson uh, from the cart- of cartoon fame my first doll was a She-Ra do you remember He-Man and She-Ra She-Ra big She-Ra <laughs> fan um but also like popular culture so I love Saved by the Bell my favorite character was Jessie Spano which I think was Elizabeth Berkeley's character it was a bit of a swap but I thought she was brilliant and then <laughs> Julia Stiles her character in 10 Things I Hate About You that is literally one of my favorite films Isn't it? of it's all just time incredible. and then I was a bit I was a bit of a Shakespeare geek as well and it's a reworking of Taming of the Shrew isn't it so yes, yeah yeah and wasn't Clueless supposed to be Emma yes. as well yes exactly and then 
like Laura Dern in Jurassic Park, but also I was a bit sporty. So I loved Denise Lewis, the heptathlete, and Sally Gunnell, who was a 400 meter hurdle runner, and then Steffi Graf, the tennis player. But also, I was thinking about this earlier and I was discussing it with my husband. And I was like, actually, this is so weird. I can have only have been about seven years old, and bear with me on this. But it was the Conservative <laughs> leadership race after Maggie Thatcher had been thrown off from Prime Minister when John Major became Prime Minister. But in the running were Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine I had the biggest crush on Michael Heseltine (laughs) I was seven years old I I love it I love the inner workings of Kimberly Rowell executive producer at the BBC (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't tell anyone (laughs) okay anyone that's listening don't spread it any further (laughs) so if your family were here now Mm. how do you think they would describe you back then and how would they describe you now Oh, back then I was I was super annoying uh, from a young <laughs> uh, from a young child. I just wanted to change things, and I wanted to like be in and do everything. I wanted to be involved. So, <laughs> like the amount of clubs that I did at school, just because I wanted to try everything and see if I liked it or see if I was any good at it. And I did a lot. Like I said, I did a lot of sports, but I also did a lot of kind of like drama stuff and some writing and some volunteering. I mean, I remember writing to our local newspaper which was like the North Devon Gazette and Advertiser saying <laughs> you don't do anything for teenagers let me write for you and they did and they gave me like £10 a week to do a column which was wow. like, oh, no I know but it's like <laughs> I was annoying I was really annoying and then um I think mainly because of my diabetes, but I can't really excuse my behaviour on my diabetes. But I wanted to test the limits of things. So when I was a teenager, I was, yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit of a, what's the word? I don't know. I used to go out every weekend and I wasn't quite old enough and I'd get into a lot of trouble and a lot of hair raising experiences. And yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit of a nightmare. My poor mum and dad, I don't know. I worry about my own daughter now. I was like, please don't do this to me. Um, uh, I guess now, like, I've changed. I feel like I've changed loads, but I think I'm still fundamentally the same person. I've just evolved and I know what matters to me and what's mm. meaningful to me. So I still have all the same kind of personality traits, but I've maybe kind of learned how to use them, not just to my benefit, but to like, to, to, to make make meaningful and purposeful things and I think also since having my daughter any work that I do and obviously it means being away from her I want it to be meaningful and I think all of the kind of the good things that have happened in my career have happened after having her so Mm. if anyone ever says to you like don't have kids it will ruin your career I'd argue the antithesis of that like my career has never been better (laughs) since having a daughter so (laughs) that's yeah two fingers up to them yeah I totally agree and actually that is is completely playing into your testing the limits of mm. of those sort of societal rules and and also your physical self and your mental self. Mm. I, you know, having a child and trying to do the job that you have, there's there's a lot of rebellion that must play out in that uh, scenario <laughs> in terms of proving people wrong. Yeah, completely. And I do. I think that maybe that is kind of like the kind of the, the main thread and the main 
main kind of stream of consciousness in me. I want to prove people wrong and I, I don't like stereotypes and I don't like being pigeonholed and I want to just be able to do and experience what I want to do really not selfishly necessarily but I think it's it's very much wrapped up in my own self-worth and happiness is you know I absolutely agree I mean you're on a podcast called the brave moment for a reason <laughs> and, and I feel like we were we must have been kindred spirits when we were young because I was definitely in your camp of trying to test those limits and and see what I could not get away with necessarily but just to see if I could expand Ooh. myself and and push that comfort zone just a little bit further each time and uh and yeah it, it it pleases me to know that that hasn't changed in you and that it's still <laughs> recognizable to you yourself oh, it's definitely really still cool. there for sure <laughs> so what is one common misconception that people have about you you know again I was kind of thinking about this and I thought it's in, it's interesting and I maybe it's also a hangover from my younger days is I was so eager to please I was you know almost falling over myself to make people like me or to fit in and I think mm. some of it comes from not being acknowledged and like I say growing up in North Devon and maybe not having as many kind of opportunities as I could have or should have I don't know but I was always falling over myself to try and make everybody like me and one of the hardest lessons I learned in life is that you can't some people just won't mm. like you some people just you just won't get on with you'll either clash or they just won't even try and it's beyond your control so yeah, it's interesting. And I, I've kind of, again, grown out of that now. I've either grown out of it or I've got a thicker skin or I'm just so time poor. I don't have time to worry about it. <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, that's probably one of my, a little, little bit of a regret, I guess, because I think it caused me quite a lot of unhappiness. I remember I never really got any sense of satisfaction out of it and mm. trying to be included or trying to, trying to make people include me. I wasn't on, popular and I think like everybody I probably was a little bit bullied but not extensively but mm. I don't yeah it's interesting I'd maybe want to kind of redress that if I could go back to my younger self and say like just chill out it's fine <laughs> oh I'm so with you I went to uh, Devonport High School for girls oh. and uh, and had a very very similar experience in terms of I I think when you're just in with your own sex and you're in quite a competitive environment in terms of intellectualism you you do you just you find yourself either competing or trying so hard to fit in you almost end up sort of screwing that up and yeah. becoming a black sheep because people just get pissed off with you don't they yeah or they're <laughs> just, just like shut up well, like, you know, they kick yeah, you yeah. out length because you're, you're annoying really but um I don't know it's just I think it's there's again everything in equal measure maybe but yeah I just I, I don't I think back on it and I think oh I'm not I'm not so fond of that memory so so what do you think uh teenage Kimberly would think of your career now do you think she'd be impressed with you or if it was up to her what would you be doing oh yeah I think <laughs> she would never have believed it it sounds really egotistical doesn't it but um <laughs> I think I went to I studied broadcast journalism at Leeds and I did that because I thought I wanted to read the news and then quickly found that reporting like journalism the actual kind of hard and fast of it on a day-to-day -day basis as in like the reporting correspondent type role I didn't like it was too nosy and it was too intrusive mm. and that kind of thing and I did a lot of work experience just to try and test the water in some other avenues and fell into like tv production 
And I never for a million years, mm. like my first big move was from 2-4 broadcast in Plymouth. I went and got, I got a job at GMTV and I, there's definitely some kind of element of serendipity in play because I've been trying to move to London to be with my then boyfriend at the time because that's where he was. But to work for GMTV, I would never have imagined in my wildest dreams that that ever would have happened. And apparently the story goes is that they'd gone through a load of people and hadn't found the right candidate for the job. And then they turned the CVs upside down and my CV was on the bottom <laughs> and they they interviewed me and hired me. So like, you know, it's just those elements of <laughs> serendipity and fate is I, I can't be more thankful for but yeah teenage me would be I don't know incredulous I think or just a little bit surprised maybe because she, she was a kickboxer wasn't she at one point oh <laughs> uh, yeah no I've got, I do have a black I've got a black belt in kickboxing so this is me just again testing the limits of everything I was really in like my I had sporting heroes who were mainly runners but I used to do a lot of running I ran for North Devon in like the 100 and 200 meters and then I got bored of that and then thought what can I do next and I joined a local kickboxing academy in Barnstable in North Devon and I got I got my black belt in kickboxing so <laughs> of course you mm, did Kim yeah <laughs> I told you I'm annoying I'm really annoying <laughs> but inspiring and that's what we like here at the Brave Room I, I want to take you back to that GMTV interview only because I'm so like curious as to how that went can you remember what you felt like when you walked into that interview oh hugely intimidated in every sense of the word and I think I'd had a few interviews and they I'd not got any of, of them and I was a little bit not despondent but like I've got nothing to lose so let's just go in here all guns blazing and yeah I think I actually not fell out I had a heated discussion shall we say with the, the <laughs> hiring manager but she was quite quirky it was a lady called Nog Sorden I'll never forget her. She was cool name. Yeah, her name's actually <laughs> Margaret, but their nickname was Nog. And um, she actually gave us all a spelling test because she was really hot on grammar and punctuation. And things. <laughs> I remember that too. But yeah, so we had a bit of a disagreement, and then she actually quite liked it. And when I thought I might be onto something, I think the HR resources woman was kind of saying, "Oh, you know, Nog, you're going to miss your train. Do you not have to go?" And she goes, "Oh, no, no, no. There's one a bit later." And as soon as she said that, I was like, "Oh." Maybe she actually likes me, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just didn't. I didn't think that in my wildest dreams I would ever get a job. Like it was walking, it was walking up to the ITV building, which used to be on South Bank, which I think they've now knocked down. But mm. they used to have ITV Studios where they did the Graham Norton show and the Jonathan Ross and Anton Deck Saturday Night Takeaway, all in this building on the studio floor level, and then all the offices were above it. And even just walking to that building, it was it was a really ugly building, but it was it, you know. It, it, you walk into the reception it's got all these pictures of all these famous people that work at ITV and you're just kind of overawed by the whole thing and little me who was in like early 20s just didn't really I didn't think, didn't think I really grasped the gravitas of it you know and mm. I just kind of like I say I probably just thought sod it I'll give it a go see what happens <laughs> so. so when when you went into that situation mm. Did you did you have any kind of imposter syndrome or like you said, was it that you didn't quite grasp what, what you were walking into and therefore it didn't really phase you? I think in that specific example, I was a bit, what, what the hell? But hundred like every job I've ever gone for since then and even now in like my day-to-day -day working life, imposter syndrome is something you wrangle with every kind of other minute it's just so it's such a challenge it just 
why me? Why why not someone else? Why am I good enough? Why, why aren't they getting someone else to do this? Is what I've done good enough? Is someone going to see through me? Are they going to realise that they've got the wrong person doing this? You know, it's, I think, again, unfortunately, it's something that's inherent within all of us that we just question it. And I also don't think it's just limited to women because I speak to my husband about it and he, he definitely has the same kind of feelings around the work that he does. And... I don't know why we do this to ourselves because, and I don't know why I do it to myself because life would be an awful lot easier and I certainly get you know, more hours work, work done in the day. But it's just, I think that an element of self-deprecation is good, but not to the point where you're actually questioning your every move or, mm. you know, because if you're in a role, at least you know, two or three very important people think you should be doing it. So run with that sentiment, run with the idea that you were hired to do this out of however many candidates that were, you know, just had also applied and were probably just as skilled, if not more, but just, mm. you know, kind of revel in your own greatness, I suppose, because we're all different. And that's what kind of makes life fun and interesting is the fact it, and but also the little nuances that you can bring to it, all the little idiosyncrasies of your own personality or the way you operate or the way you talk to people or just the way you perform generally. That's that's why they've hired you. So try and just bear that in mind. I absolutely agree. And it's it's actually something that I have to tell myself quite often. I have this little phrase, which is so super cheesy. It is the phrase, I am enough. And I have to mm. consistently, whenever I'm in a moment, like even just before interviewing yourself, knowing that, you you know, you are so amazing at your job and you've got accolades coming off each arm. And I, I had to say to myself, come on, you know, I am enough. I'm just another woman doing my job. And therefore we can add to each other in, in that space. Now, I think like some of the, um, some of the imposter syndrome comes from feeling that someone is above you or unequal to you in some mm. way and therefore having to try and live up to an expectation. It's, but for me, it's really weird to hear you say that because I don't think of myself like that and I will like literally chat to the cows come home about anything so I think you know I think we do ourselves a disservice don't we and it's nonsensical sometimes because you know I think it can be I think some people in some situations can be unnecessarily difficult and that is where these feelings have come from because we probably can all recollect a time where we've spoken or had an interaction and we've come out of it feeling like crap mm. and I think that's where like these little seeds of doubt then start to creep in and manifest and become way bigger than they should be because the majority of the people like want you to do well and they want you to feel like you are good enough and nine times out of ten you are there you go that's a mic drop moment right there <laughs> <laughs> so talking of being good enough and feeling good about your work can you remember a time where you thought wow, this is what I do for a living. Can you describe that moment to us? Yeah, yeah, this was quite surreal. It was in, this sounds like I'm just like, clang, I've dropped a name. Um, so <laughs> I was in Princess Diana's living room at Kensington, in Kensington Palace about to record Prince Harry talking to Bryony Gordon about 
his mother's death because it was I think it was either the 20th or the 21st anniversary of her death and he'd chosen to record the first episode of Bryony's new podcast which was called Mad World and we'd all gone to Kensington Palace to record it with him and then we ended up doing a couple of series of the podcast and another like motivational one but yeah that was a moment and I'd literally I think this was a month again after I'd come back from maternity leave and um, it was one of those like I don't think at the time I was like, wow, here I am kind of thing. <laughs> but in retrospect, it was a bit surreal. And actually, that was the day of the Westminster terror attacks too. So straight after our interview, he was whisked away to a secure room just because of the, the high terrorism threat. So, And also I had to ring my husband. I was like, can you go get our daughter from nursery? Because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this I'm situation trapped. at work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe that, I think that when it, when you ask me that question, that's what kind of springs to mind. But there have been lots of little moments. Like, I'm very fortunate to be part of a network called the Women of the Future Network. And they, before lockdown, literally just before lockdown, so like around about this time last year, we went out to Cambodia and we were guests of the ambassador of Cambodia. And we had round tables with NGOs talking about human trafficking and women's rights and the country and we spoke to the UN and it was just the most inexplicably bizarre moment of my life but also probably one of the most fulfilling and just the the conversations and the access and just to even be part of it was just beyond my wildest dreams I literally grew up in a single parent household in middle of nowhere in North Devon and then all of a sudden I was with the head of the UN and the ambassador for Cambodia talking about you know the slave the slave trade it was it was it was just I don't know like pinch yourself what happened kind of moment I I can't imagine what that must have felt like but also just as a woman being part of that conversation being part of that world that must have been incredible to be to be there and also because of your work I didn't you talk about imposter syndrome that was probably one of my biggest moments because also the other women that were part of the delegation there was a head of a bank there's a woman who's just been awarded an MBE there's the head of um, the American Red Cross charity they'd all part of the same delegation and I was like what why why am why am I here you know (laughs) what did I do I don't get it but um yeah I don't know and it's but it, it was so remarkable and I'm so hugely grateful and I think you have to stay humble and remember why you're there and the reasoning why they might have wanted to bring you to the table Mm. and adding your voice to lots of others and I think also it's something that's kind of sprung out of last year as well was kind of all the the resurgence of BLM and things like that Mm. I've never been more aware of my own white privilege and what I have over other people and it's never I don't think it's ever harmful to just be checked on that and just to be made to have some perspective Mm. on how fortunate you are in life and I got a lot of that out of it too you know, talking about one of those pinch yourself moments. So I went out to Vietnam um, before the lockdown with with a couple of creatives to work for uh, a foundation called the Animals Asia Foundation, which is run by a wonderful woman called Jill Robinson, who is a white English woman in, mm. you know, in Asia trying to, to create change there. And I can remember I was sat there and we were talking about some sensitive issues. And 
everyone, so there was a whole heap of different people, very, very diverse group that we all were. And half of them were having to switch their phones off. And, and so I asked, because, you know, talking again about white privilege and, and learning about how other cultures have to operate, I, I just asked, you know, why, why is everyone switching off their phones? And, um, these people that that were from different parts of Asia, they were saying, well, we have to switch them off because the government will be listening in. And wow. and suddenly I was like, what? Are you kidding? Like, well, well, seriously? Seriously, seriously, wow. seriously. And I learned a lot about, uh, about, you know, governmental issues that day and how people in different countries operate. Um, mm. and, and I was completely oblivious. You know, the things that I take for granted on that level were suddenly just all completely blasted open and and like you said with the BLM mu- movement last year I I don't think I've ever been so aware and and one of the things that mm. I love about your work is that you're winning awards for your knowledge and your observation of diversity within the programming that you're bringing across which I think is so so important and you know when when did that start for you when did you start thinking to yourself you know what I really need to look at this and I really need to impact you know, with my job, what's being put out there to the nation? Yeah, I think I always find it such a fine line to tread because clearly I'm not from a BAME background, but I feel like I have an awful lot to offer in regards to kind of socioeconomic background because we I'm from like a, a lower class family, really. Mm. We got, as I grew up in North Devon, my mum was a single parent for a fair few years before she married my stepdad. And I'm really like hugely fortunate because he's a, a remarkable father figure to me. But I feel like having grown up in the sticks and had to like scrabble around for being able to pay the bills, like I had, um, I did a video at Christmas because my mum had to sell her engagement ring to to pay the car tax or something one year mm-hmm. and we found a replica for her for Christmas and we gave it to her mm-hmm. and I, I put it on Twitter and it went viral like I didn't mean for that to like I was that wasn't my intention mm-hmm. I just wanted it like a feel-good thing and it makes me quite emotional just talking about it but I think you know just I've you struggle and I think I think even being a even being a woman and as much as it's not it's not maybe as bad as it used to be, but I've had some really terrible male bosses, mm. like really terrible, just for very simple reasons. And you always just think, but you've got mothers and you've got mm. sisters and wives, and why can you not think about things from their perspective when you're approaching how you speak to people or how you try, you know, just to encourage younger women. Like you can't be what you can't see. Mm. So if you're shooting down me or another female counterpart or someone you work with, it's going to set them back far further than it would for a male counterpart, arguably, but just because of the way, you know, all the things we've talked about, imposter syndrome, resilience, confidence, Mm. you know, all those kinds of things. But when it comes to like reflecting it in my work, it's just like we, when we, as we started the conversation, it's just making sure that you're creating an environment with the work that you're doing, that you can encourage people to have an open dialogue about these types of subject matter Mm. and genres of film and we did a piece literally just after the George Floyd's death and the BLM resurgence which was called go back to where you came from which was um, British nationals who'd been told at various points in their lives to go home Mm. when they're all actually born and bred in this country (laughs) and it was yeah it was an exploration of race identity white privilege and it was such a hard 
documentary to actually physically get signed off by all of the the channel runners and things like that because the BBC itself at that point had been slapped on the wrist for the use of the n-word in Mm. news bulletins and things like that and we don't always get it right and it was like I say it was a really fine line to walk and we we have to be mindful of if we're telling those kinds of stories not only do you have to have the right people in front of the camera you need to have the right people behind the camera and you know being again like a white now middle class female exec it's it's a challenge to say like well why should I be doing that why should I be telling those stories and it's a constant education for myself to just try you have to try every single day to be mindful to be representative but also just to consider what it means to the wider audience and the people that are climbing up the ladder the same ladder that I had to had to navigate so yeah it's it's a big challenge I was just thinking about uh, as you were saying that as well I, I watched your um the documentary that you put out called Stop and Search, um, uh, which kind of explores that thing where, you know, the policemen can can stop whoever they want to and search them. And just what happens to people on the streets and how they decide to stop and search those people and the consequences that happen from that. And that was utterly eye-opening. Yeah, it was... It was- it was heartbreaking almost to make it, to be honest, because the Bain, people from Bane backgrounds are far, 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 far more likely to be stopped and searched by the police mm. just for being from a Bane background. And we kind of explored the reasoning behind that. We spoke to the West Midlands Police Commissioner, who was a, a young black guy himself. And, you know, you just try and understand it from where they're coming from. But also they've developed mobile apps now. So if you are being stopped and searched, you can record what's happening just mm. by shaking your phone, you know, without like, you know, conscious. So they don't see what you're doing necessarily, mm. but you've got a record of it and it's uploaded straight away to a database and all of those kinds of things. And you think even just to have to consider that as an option for you to live your day-to-day life, that's horrific mm. in today's society, but stuff like that is still going on and still a considered massive consideration. It's heartbreaking. Well, I'm glad that someone like you is behind it and that you're bringing it to our attention. And I think it's really, really important. And hopefully, you know, other, um, you know, programming can can look at that and and learn from it and progress with it, which, you know, fingers crossed, it's starting to to happen now, especially on sort of streaming services like Netflix yeah. as well. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So talking of, you know, diversity, you have won quite a few awards, <laughs> my lovely lady, um, all of which are absolutely well deserved. But which one? was the most poignant for you and and how did it change your perspective emotionally uh without a doubt the women of the future award that i got in 2018 changed my life i don't really know how or <laughs> but it, the, the lovely thing and it all, whenever i talk about it, it always sounds like i'm a member of a cult and i don't mean this to come across this way but um <laughs> I saw the opportunity and I applied for it and I just thought, this just sounds fantastic, you know, and I wanted, I'd done a lot of work within the mental health space at that point and I just, yeah, so I wanted to kind of put myself forward f- for the award, which sounds bizarre in itself, but the way that, that you normally get judged for these awards is just on paper, so whether it's like your CV or your credentials or whatever you've put into the entry box, but the different thing about this one was that they interview you as part of the shortlist and then they interview the final few candidates. So I had to go and go and speak to them. And it just felt a lot more realistic to me. They weren't just looking at who you 
are and how you appear on paper. They really wanted to get under the skin of what your motivations were. And if you were keen to invest in the idea of paying it forward and being a mentor and, you know, like a guiding light to other people and other women within the same kind of industries. And I think even just having those conversations with them. I think also I think whenever you're interviewed, it's not just you being interviewed. You need to interview the company to see if you want to be part of it. But but this this mm. process just seemed a lot more um like like how how it all should be, how life should be, how work should be, how we all operate. And then I remember going to the awards ceremony not thinking in a million years that I'd win it. I think I was in the same category as Sophie Faldo, who I think won Great Bake Off, does she win? Yeah, and yeah. Emma Gannon, who right, who does Control Alt Delete and a, a massive podcast, and I was like, there is not a chance in hell. So, and also the award was right at the end of the evening, and someone at my table had already got an award, and I was like, well, that's it, that's the the, ta- the award for this table. But um, so I got a little bit piddly, to be honest, and um, <laughs> it came to my award, and um, my my name came up, came up, and my husband was like, Kim, you've won, you need to move you need to get up <laughs> and I just oh yeah but then since that moment they've been so supportive to me and they've opened so many doors for me and I've been made redundant three times in my life over a space of five years which obviously a, a lot for anybody but the day after I'd won the award I had the award on my desk at work and I was told I was being made redundant this was for the third time so to kind of go like you know the literally the ultimate high to the the lowest low and yeah as part of that redundancy process I offered to start a podcast for them where I speak to their alumni and people that are affiliated to the program about their own Mm. lives and the hope of like inspiring other people so I launched that in my my third redundancy period (laughs) (laughs) just have something to do more than to be honest but um yeah and it's just like I said, I went to Cambodia with them. It's just and they their networks and the kind of sessions that they that they run and the people that they have access to has just it's been life changing for me. And I don't you don't realise or you don't appreciate these things, but some networks aren't necessarily much use to you. But this one is you know I'm still in touch with them today. And their founder Pinky calls me up all the time, which is very random. Pinky, yeah, she's, I yeah, love it. she's she's a little <laughs> Indian lady who is just the most awesome woman in the world. But um, yeah, it's just such. It feels like a big family. Like I said, it feels like I've joined a cult, but um, like the <laughs> nicest cult in the world. So <laughs> the most supportive, mm. happy yeah. cult. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm really, really cheats uh obviously as a podcaster as well how are you finding that podcast and and is it still giving you that same passion as when you won the award and and started it up in that moment of uh, adversity yeah I think I'm quite nosy as a person so I always just like asking oh, people <laughs> questions and I think well if they don't want to answer it they just they'll just stay silent or say no so um yeah no it's been I think now particularly during the pandemic everyone seems to have started a podcast but um I <laughs> Which, which is good, obviously, because there's lots of choice out there. But um, also, I just, yeah, I find it, again, I was talking about escapism earlier. I find it like an element of escapism for me because I find, like, I edit the audio and things and I find that quite cathartic and there's quite, like, I just, I just 
enjoy it. So it's become a hobby for me. And yeah, some of the conversations I've been fortunate to have, I managed to get Cherie Blair on the podcast and Jess Phillips has been on the podcast and some like high, more high profile men. We've not, we've only had three men. I think I've had 40 guests and only four of them have been men. So. But, um, <laughs> make them work for it. Make them work for it. But no, I really enjoy the podcast space. And yeah, I mean, I've become a bit more picky about the podcast that I listen to myself but um yeah I think you know it's quite it's quite niche isn't it now the podcasting world and there's so many genres and subgenres, so there's probably something for everybody out there so I want to talk to you a little bit about success because obviously you have had uh, a lot of recognition for for your success and like I've said rightly so but what's your own sort of personal criteria for it because sometimes like mine is just being able to get up and make a cup of tea in the morning yeah. and not be disturbed by my husband <laughs> so so what what is that what is that for you success look like um that's a really good question and I have in all honesty like personally I've struggled with my own mental health at various points and sometimes it's still it's still a big challenge for me and even through again through the periods of redundancies that was one of the hardest things because even the word redundant means there's there's no use for you and it took me a while to realize it was the role that was redundant and not me necessarily but Mm. I suppose success for me now always harks back to whatever it is that makes you happy. And that's quite personal. But to me now, it's it's my husband and my daughter and my mum and my dad. You know, it's that's where I'm at my happiest. And that's I think that's also something you really need to remember when you get bulked down with work and projects. And does it matter? I think that someone once said to me, like, if you've got the choice of going to your child's nativity or someone said you need to finish this project, what is going to matter more in five years' time? The fact that you didn't go to the nativity or the fact that you can't even remember the name of the project that you were supposed to finish, you know? So I think success is just, like you say, it can be as simple as just putting your game face on and going and making a cup of tea and being ready for whatever the day throws at you. That's, I think, sometimes the simplest things to me of even just been getting up in the first place, you know, when you're in your mm. kind of really bleak moments. But I think, you know, just that there are things that you should get up for. Maybe it is as you get older and with all the lived experience you have, it gives life more meaning and more purpose and more drive. But it's hard. It's, I think it's really hard. And I know it's very subjective for everybody out there, but I suppose it's just also having people remember you fondly or just remembering the nice things that that you did I mean kindness is a huge thing for me and I don't Mm. think you can underestimate the power of kindness particularly in leadership but yeah I think success is what makes you happy really (laughs) exactly that and and it's something that you kind of learn I think with age as well Mm. because in the beginning you're kind of like you're just striving for a job you just want to get your rent in you might have a boyfriend Mm. you might not you know vice versa and uh and it's not on your mind is it that happiness almost becomes a second priority and then as you get older and you get sort of more set in your ways with your career that's when you start to reflect on that that part of your life and and it does become more important the older that you get yeah. and I'm just thinking you know as you're saying that you know you're you were made redundant three times it just goes to show that anybody regardless of who you are or what you know can always be in that vulnerable position yeah. when when you're in those redundancy moments how did you get yourself 
out of it in terms of your mind? And and for those people that through maybe this pandemic have been made redundant, what advice can you give them just to make it through to that happier space? Gosh, yeah, it's it's so hard. And each of the redundancies kind of were slightly different, I guess. The first one, I was mid-20s and I thought it was the end of the world and I literally couldn't get out of bed in the morning. But I think establishing a routine is key. Like in, I think also they say this to people who retire as well. But, you know, just literally getting up for something or making an appointment that you can't necessarily break or, you know, a commitment to yourself to do a a project or call a friend or call a family member, you know, literally having a routine and exercise is phenomenally helpful. I used to swim a lot when through periods of redundancy, but also, also, I mean, when you, when you do break out of the really darkest moments, think about the things that you've been putting off because of your career. Like I've written, written books, I've written stories, I've started a podcast, you know, it's all those things that you think, oh, I'd love to do that one day. And you have that moment to literally think about, well, I probably could have a bit of time now. And obviously you might not necessarily have the the money to support it, but you can at least put wheels in motion or start having the right kinds of conversation that can lead you to that point of feeling as though you're still being productive in some way. And that's, I think Mm. that's the challenge. It's losing the sense of purpose. So you need to try and figure out what it is that would give that back to you, whether it's on a really small scale, even like I think offering to iron shirts or you know just literally giving you some sort of sense of gratification that's that's the really that's the biggest challenging moments and I remember in one period of redundancy it was over Christmas and I needed I needed some I needed money really so I started working at Clinton Cards and they they, they put me in charge <laughs> this is so I'm laughing already but they put me in charge <laughs> of this store that was closing down in Oxford in what is now the Westgate Centre so they did eventually demolish it thank god but um at one point <laughs> I was so terrible I didn't know how to like cash up and lock down but they'd left it to me to do obviously and then I, I got locked in the shopping center because it had taken me so long to do it because I couldn't figure it out they locked me in the shopping center and I was like oh my actual god and I had to go and like luckily the girls at Primark were still folding up jumpers so I literally like bang bang on the door they thought I was crazy first off and then eventually let me in and then I went out through the back and round by the bins and got out of the shopping centre. But I was like, oh, (laughs) this is not a moment to reflect on. But then it's like really surreal. When I I got to do a TED talk and TED talk was in Oxford and literally just before my TED talk, I went to Westgate and I was like, this is just so bizarre. This is where I used to work about two or three years ago and now I'm going to go to the Oxford Library and do a TED talk it was this literally it could not have been more surreal or highs and lows it was ridiculous yeah <laughs> I'm just trying to envision that myself like how I would feel in that moment it was, I, was, I was like I do, cannot stay here overnight that was my decision <laughs> I am not going to sleep in this shopping centre but it was and yet oh. there were so many movies about I staying know. overnight in a shopping centre and what you do <laughs> get out I was I was literally panicking but 
Oh, my life. Anyway. That is absolutely brilliant Mm. and it has made me giggle for days. I love it. So talking about your job to date, take us through sort of a typical day. What do you have to do? Do you have a morning ritual to sort of get yourself up and keep yourself going? What does that day look like for you? Well, we're normally, at the moment, we're normally rudely awoken by our daughter sometime between five and half past six, which is always always a pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. um, That starts starts the day. Um, And then she's preschool age and she's still going to preschool thankfully because I think she's a very sociable child and taking her out would have been a really bad idea but so she'll go to preschool and then I'll get myself ready and myself set up and I've literally just moved like my office working from home setting upstairs so that I can actually close the door on it because I was working from a little table at the sofa which was the worst idea in the world but yeah and then I'll (laughs) kind of sit and join in calls from about nine half nine and then yeah it's really like you can be involved in lots of different things like commissioning meetings production meetings signing off risk assessments looking at call sheets watching videos watching like reversions of things to go on social media and lots and lots of different things really and yeah normally finishes around six ish and yeah and then kind of just wind down for the evening what you're describing sounds pretty relentless <laughs> in terms of what you have to do day by day. What do you think is sort of like the biggest challenge in balancing that home life with your career? And what tips would you give to other people, especially fellow mothers who are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, I don't always get it right, first and foremost. And there will be days where you just think you're doing it all wrong and you're not seeing your child or you're not spending any quality time with your husband and all of that kind of thing. And that you know that you've got to kind of take the rough with the smooth and also just remember that one of my favorite sayings is this too shall pass so if it's brilliant it'll end if it's crap it'll end if it's irrelevant it's going to end too so everything will will end at some point apart from maybe the pandemic um (laughs) but yeah and I think the key thing is to just set boundaries and something that I know I need to get better at but if you're signing off stay signed off don't check your emails don't let that interrupt because if you've got one eye on something you're never fully present and again this is I should practice what I preach an awful lot more but um that thing that's key you're just you'll go you'll go bonkers you can't always be on you can't you need that downtime you need that headspace so just be your self-care isn't it you know just relaxing taking the time you are allowed to sit and do nothing you can read it you can read a book you can do what you want do something for you that's important for you to just take a breath and you know take a pause and you need that in your daily life and you need it in your daily routine so try and factor it in whenever you can it doesn't have to be the same time every day because I know with me like my day doesn't always work like that I can't always go out at one o'clock so but just try and say what I'm having that half an hour I'm having those 45 minutes to do something for me and take a break and walk away from the screen and turn it off and just be inaccessible for those moments that's really, really good advice and, and something that I'm trying to practice now myself in, in turning the screen off because now obviously we are so screen involved mm. and it is zapping. It, it's so it really is. zapping. It's impossible. And it's so hard. It is completely impossible. And half the time you find yourself procrastinating, scrolling through social media because you just want to avoid the work. And then the other time you're just like, right, I've just got to get it done. So you spend hours mm. and hours in front of that screen. So that's absolutely wonderful advice. Thank you for that. Um, 
It's called The Brave Moment, this particular podcast. So I have to ask you that crucial question. What do you consider to be your bravest moment, either personally, spiritually or emotionally in retrospect now? What is that moment that sort of changed you and and how do you live by it today? I have, a, I have a couple of things, if that's okay. I'm not sure if I'm allowed, if I'm allowed for it. to. Um, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing, I think being brave means you need to be vulnerable. And that's the hardest part, isn't it? It's literally opening yourself up for come what may. You know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But the first kind of bravest moment when I was I've never really spoken about this but when I was relatively young I was in quite a toxic relationship and I wasn't actually going to go to university because I was so infatuated with this person but I did (laughs) and we moved up together and I didn't realize at the time because maybe it just wasn't spoken about or I'd never heard the term until like a few years ago but he was massively gaslighting me he was so kind of psychologically manipulating me and it was a pretty horrific relationship all round. And it got to a point where obviously I was at university. I just got through my first year and I kind of knew through my own moral compass that this wasn't going to be forever, but I'd never really taken the the chance to completely break it off. I'd always kind of half-heartedly attempted it. And I was really young and a bit stupid. And then one evening I went out with another friend and I ended up very this is very kind of like a teenage but I ended up kissing a kissing another bloke and he got furious about it and I went back and we kind of had a bit of a fight quite a physical fight that I've still got like scars on my hands from and things like that and I ended up having to move all of my stuff out it's in bin bags even though I paid for the flat that we lived in and so he, he, he chucked me out and he piled up all my clothes and he, he weed all over my clothes and all this kind of stuff. And then the, we called the police and I was up in Leeds and my parents were down in Barnstable. So it was a six hour drive for them to get up and I had to wait for them to arrive. And then we moved all my stuff out in bin bags. And I was like, like I said, I was that early 20s and it was quite a trauma, but I was quite proud of myself for eventually getting to the point where I realised this wasn't me, this wasn't my life, this wasn't what I wanted. And it took such a lot of strength and a lot of kind of, um, I don't know, I had to be ready to do it for myself, I guess, which is where the biggest challenge came from. Because everyone was telling me how toxic it was and how no good he was. And I was just, I'd always defend him and, you know, and then obviously there were a few little bits of back and forth after that, but ultimately we, we stayed apart, we stayed know um broken up but it was probably one of the most challenging parts of my life and it kind of badly shaped my university experience I was never a massive fan of university and like I said I didn't necessarily want to go but yeah moving Mm. in with him rather than moving into halls wasn't the best way to start I don't think but I managed to reconnect with some course friends and then stayed at university and one of my good friends I stayed at hers because she was at Sheffield and I did my first year exams and all this kind of stuff so I managed to navigate my way through it but that was probably one of the hardest moments and I don't really talk about it because I feel a bit stupid about it I guess but I guess it's also one of life's one of those kind of fundamental blocks in life that has helped me get to where I am and 
Yeah. I, do you know what? I, I really, I connect with that story and my heart is absolutely beating fast as you're saying it. And funny enough, uh, we, we've taken a sort of similar trajectory. So I had the same experience with a, a very physical narcissist, um, mm. very, very charming on the outside, yeah. but behind closed doors. Um, it, it, you know, it got to the point where he'd like, he'd weigh me each week because oh I wasn't allowed God. to go a certain weight and he'd want me to dress in a certain way. And it was all very much like, that and, um, wow. and I felt so stupid that I put myself in that position but then you know like yourself you learn you learn how to sort of justify and accept and surrender to that trauma and try and live with it I don't think it ever really goes does it you just sort no. of transmute it into something different I think it's I feel like it's part of my formative history which is probably something that I've learned to even kind of pigeonhole it by saying that or compartmentalize mm-hmm. it by saying that but I think I always knew, like I say, because I was so young, I think I always knew that I was going to work through it. It's easy to say that now mm. because I did. I don't know. I'm not sure if I ever really anticipated staying with him or, but I, it always comes back for me to like my moral compass. I do know the difference between right and wrong. And I could mm. tell that this was hugely wrong and unacceptable. And it's weird to even talk about it now because it's literally, it is probably literally about 20 years ago. So it's crazy, (laughs) crazy times. (laughs) What have been some of your other brave moments? Oh, well, I've got one coming up. I'm going to, well, I've written another book. This is one, this one's for adults. Um, And it's kind (gasps) of part self-help kind of part memoir where I wanted to address some of some of the stuff we've been talking about really you know the importance of perspective how to build confidence when you're at your lowest ebb how to overcome and, and use vulnerability imposter syndrome and the importance of reframing and how to turn negatives into positives so I've kind of structured it into chapters and at the end of each chapter are kind of little exercises to help whoever's reading to put to good use and into working practice all of the information that's just come from each each section and um it's interspersed with little quotes from the women of the future podcast because i've spoken to some hugely inspirational people but um (laughs) the kind of element of risk and maybe bravery is that it's going to be crowdfunded so it's with a publisher called unbound publishing who are quite like well known and all of that kind of thing but i'm a little bit terrified that no one is going to <laughs> want to read it but um <laughs> i'll read it kim oh, i'll be buying it <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> but i'm hoping it will do okay and i wrote it in the last lockdown after having kind of had something in my arsenal for a little while and I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? It's like putting your baby out there to see if anyone says that it's a nice baby or it's a pretty (laughs) baby or I don't know. It's like one ugly baby. But um, we'll see how that goes. We'll drop the the link to that, if you wouldn't mind, into your show notes for this episode so that people can follow that because I'm sure that we'll all be there supporting you because it sounds fabulous. It's definitely... Oh my goodness, we are there. (laughs) It'll be everyone's birthday present for the following year, I promise. Thank you. So just before we finish this amazing interview, thank you so, so much for your time because I know it's so crucial oh no it's fine I've really enjoyed it good good so for those that are creating their own stories be them Mm. written filming or otherwise what important things should they remember and what do you wish you'd known when you first started out 
the easiest stories to tell or some of the best stories that have ever been written or filmed or just portrayed generally are from people that know exactly what they're talking about and nine times out of ten that comes from lived experience so don't be afraid obviously these things can be hugely personal and you may not want to talk about it or you might not be ready to talk about it so if that's the case invest in yourself and give yourself time and that can also mean that skill sets like learn your trade learn your craft I think some of the most frustrating things that I've experienced are people that just try to run before they can walk which is also something that my husband accuses me of as well (laughs) but um sometimes you actually do need to physically understand your craft if it's kind of camera skills I mean I started as a runner and I think that was never more important in my career because you have an appreciation for every kind of level of the hierarchy because inevitably there will be a hierarchy so take the time to learn and understand whatever field it you're in but also explore your passions you know talking about what makes you happy what things if it's if you're not going to get that out of your job which hopefully your job will make you happy what things can you do to just ensure that your life is full and you're you're doing what you want to do and you mean you get one shot at this thing called life so you might as well give it your best and just try and keep perspective stay grounded stay true to yourself and surround yourself with the with all the people that bring that out of you. That was such wonderful, wonderful advice. And I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed listening to to everything you've had to say today. So thank you so, so much. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. It's been been really fun. It has been awesome. And um, yeah, everything that you've said, I'm I'm just going to take it away and absorb it. (laughs) Well, thank you for all you do too. This podcast is brilliant. Such a great platform to hear such diverse and different stories from people from all walks of life. So thank you for for this podcast, really. Oh, it's such a pleasure, love. I don't know if I've got another... (laughs) So for those people that have been interested in what you've had to say today, what are your social handles? Where can they find you? And those all important books that you've been talking about, where can they purchase them? So my Twitter and my Instagram is at Kim Rowell TV and Rowell is like cow but with an R a little bit of me dies every time I say that but <laughs> <laughs> yes and I'm not in all the usual places but I, I will undoubtedly be annoying everybody by publicising the book which is called Occupied Why You Are So Much More Than Your Job so that's that will be the name of the book hopefully Oh snap I love oh. it <laughs> Well thank you so so much Kim and uh, enjoy the rest of your lockdown and hopefully we'll see you on the other side free and easy thank you Kat (laughs) thanks so much Kim is a woman trying her best to bring about change in the public space she has literally made it her life's work to start a conversation on the stories that matter and even if it means laying awake at night hoping not to receive threats from those that she challenges she will do it because she recognises that that story is bigger than her own I'm reminded of Maya Angelou's quote, speak your truth even if your voice shakes, and Kim has chosen truth. In doing so, she has found that there are more people like her out there, that when one person speaks up, so will another and another, and so the truly difficult conversations that we need to have can go ahead in a space where people lift you up and support you. 
Even though we live in a world where sometimes it's hard to find those supportive spaces to create change, Kim shows us that if you are passionate, if you are willing to put in the time to explore, find and participate in activities, groups or communities, or even be brave enough to create that initial space yourself for the stories that compel you, you will find your tribe and your own rhythm. She tells us that as long as you can remain authentic, as long as the story you're telling means something to you, you are the right person for the job. Even if that means employing others' expertise on the obstacles in your path or learning a new skill set in order to tell it properly. Some of the most poignant and compelling stories have been filmed on phones, sketched on paper or have been a single powerful photo. If it means something to you, it will mean something to someone else. Kim believes that as long as you remember the three following points to your story, style and tone, storytelling techniques and the element of escapism, and put your audience, people and characters first, then no matter how you produce that story, it's a story worthy of grabbing the attention of others. If you watch Kim's TEDx talk on why story matters, she explains the elements of creating such stories in a little more detail. Talking of TED Talks, hearing the cyclical nature of Kim's own story from becoming a retail assistant at Clinton Cards to literally walking past her old life and into her public speaking next life is inspiration in itself. Being made redundant, as Kim points out, comes with an abundance of emotion from feeling displaced, undervalued and unworthy to literally feeling that there isn't a place for you where there once was. In those times in our lives where we are made to feel that way, Kim reminds us that in order not to sink, a routine or plan of action can really help to maintain a sense of purpose and validity. Your circumstances are not you, the person. They are just your situation and having the energy to change that situation can only be generated through the choices you make next. Just as imposter syndrome can make you feel as if you are not the right person for the job, redundancy can have the same effect if you let it. So start with something simple to pick you up and get you through. For me, it is the phrase, I am enough. And I, like everyone else, have a body, mind and heart. And only I have the right to govern how I use it and my time on this earth. The pandemic has made everyone feel a little incapacitated or redundant and for those in the arts, myself included, that word redundant has played heavily on my mind. But coming up with inventive ways to take back the control I have over my time and my life has been one of the most playful and joyful things to do in what would otherwise be a very scary situation. Our intelligence, our capacity to love and our creative consciousness are such a rare and unique primal gift and sometimes adversity reminds us just why we have them. Try this exercise. Get an old jam jar or tin and some paper you can either rip or cut into pieces. Write down the things that make you unique. Write down the skills that you have from being able to use a computer program to being able to make a good cup of tea. Write down things that other people have said you're good at. You can message them if necessary to find out this information. Write down what you're grateful for. Write down some of your dreams and write down some activities you love to do. Draw with colourful pens, doodle or sketch. Make this heap of paper its own beautiful story just by looking at it. 
Every day for 12 months, add something to the box or jar or tin that happened that day that was good. And again, this could be as simple as, I called an old friend and reconnected, to I went for my first run in a decade. Every day you add to the abundance of paper, shuffle your hand around in there and pull something out. Allow yourself to really feel what you're reading. Or, if you prefer, you could wait until the end of the 12-month period and say, on your next birthday or festive holiday, tip out all the paper and allow yourself to be reminded of all the things that make you, you. All the things that have created your year's story and feel all the things that mattered once more. This is also a wonderful exercise to do with your family or friends and a great way to remember what really matters to you most. At the end of the day, We are all responsible for our own story and the stories we put out there in the public space. We can choose to support important stories and start a movement behind them, such as Black Lives Matter, Hearts Not Parts or the Me Too movement. And we can also choose to support sentimental stories, such as that of Captain Sir Tom Moore. We also have the power to share our own unique stories with others if we're ready to, so that we can help each other. Who you are and how you deal with your own humanity just might help someone else to deal with theirs. As Morgan Harper Nichols once said, Tell the story of the mountain you climbed. Your words may become a page in someone else's survival guide. Talking of survival guides, take a look at Kim Rowell's newest book available on Unbound, titled You Are So Much More Than Your Job. Who knows, it may just be your survival guide. Next week on the show, we speak to BBC Introducing singer-songwriter Susie Mack about her work with Grammy-nominated and Ivan Novello award-winning Ian Dench, playing some of the UK's most prestigious venues, raising money for the homeless, and her daily challenges with a killer allergy that nearly took her life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe and tell me your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share the show with your friends by following us at The Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube or on Twitter at Moment Brave or just follow the link tree on all of our social media platforms. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with your own stories and remember, your brave moment starts now.